All right, welcome everyone. Welcome back for our second week of a survey through the book of Daniel. And for this, we have these uh, workbooks uh, in which you are encouraged to do some looking up of verses, answering of questions prior to our session together. So we're not going to check that, and we're not going to go through it, uh, but we'll just call on you randomly and have you answer the questions. No, we won't do that either. But if anyone does not have one of these and would like one of them, then uh, Sandra has a few copies back here. Does anybody, anybody need one? Or if on your way out you can pick one up. If you're not ready to pay for it, that's okay. We'll just put your name down, and we know where to find you if you uh, don't pay for it now. But we're going to be on page 17, page 17 in Lesson 2 in those, in those books. And we'll begin in earnest going through the key passages of the book of Daniel. And if you've got any paper or you got any uh, in the margin, if you care to take any additional notes to, to what's there, uh, if I say anything that uh, you might want to remember, then do that. Otherwise, we're recording uh, what uh, I'm saying, and you can get that uh, online at our website. So if you miss something that you wanted to get down, then you can get it uh, by listening, listening there. But one of the things that's not in your, in your uh, uh, booklet is an outline of the, the book of Daniel, or at least uh, this particular outline. And... Uh, I want to just uh, give this to you because I find it helpful. Three major points to the 12 chapters of the, the book of Daniel. And the first one is God's rule in bringing Daniel to Babylon. So the first chapter of Daniel is about that. God's sovereignty or God's rule in getting Daniel from Jerusalem to, to Babylon. And then chapters 2 through 7 are about God's rule over world empires. God's rule over world empires. So the first major section of Daniel is chapter 1, God's rule in bringing Daniel to Babylon. Then secondly, God's rule over world empires. That's chapters 2 through 7. And then the rest of the book, chapters 8 through 12, is God's rule over Israel's future. Israel's future. So you notice what all three of those have in common, God's rule. And that gives you a, uh, a clue into the theme of the book of Daniel, that it's about God's rule over everything. God's rule over Daniel, God's rule over world empires, God's rule specifically over his chosen people, Israel, and their, their future. So the book of Daniel is about God's rule, and the reason that Daniel focuses in writing these 12 chapters on God's rule is because Daniel and his contemporaries have been taken captive in Babylon. And so he and his friends and, uh, and his countrymen need to be reminded that none of this has taken God by surprise. That despite the fact that things are not as we would want them to be, to put it mildly, and we are literally not where we want to be, that God is still ruling. And so the theme of the book of Daniel is God's rule, God's rule over Daniel personally, God's rule over world empires generally, and then God's rule over his chosen people in the nation Israel, uh, both now and in the, in the future. Now, with 
with that. Uh, I said you got those three major points. God's rule over Daniel, getting to Babylon, God's rule over world empires, God's rule over Israel's future. And the second of those three is covered in chapters 2 through 7, God's rule over world empires. And uh, those uh, six chapters, 2 through, two through 7, uh, have six sections to them. So each of, the, uh, each of the chapters deals with a different aspect of God's rule over world empires. So you got those three major points, but then major point number two has these six chapters and these uh, six issues related to God's rule over world, world empires. And what's, I'll just say this now, and then we'll see it when we get to chapters, go through chapters two through seven. But what's interesting about those six chapters is that they each uh, relate to, they each relate to each other. Chapter two, and the subject of chapter two relates to the subject of chapter seven. Chapter three relates to six. Chapter four relates to five. And so, you know, I always find it amazing when God puts that kind of symmetry together in laying out a book. So you've got the first chapter is about Daniel getting to Babylon. Then the next six chapters, two through seven, deal with six issues. But they're coupled, chapter two and chapter seven, three and six, four and four and five. And so we'll see that then as we, as we look at those. So that gives you an idea of how Daniel is laid out overall and what the theme is. It's obviously God's rule, and the reason that Daniel's focused on God's rule is because he has been taken captive, and his countrymen are captive, and they need to be reminded that all of this is still within God's control. So with that, if you're able to juggle your Bible and the, the notebooks, and if you're not, it's okay, you can just listen as I read sections as we go through the book of Daniel, the, tonight the first two chapters, and then uh, offer commentary and explanation on them. But chapter 1 and verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So this is all taking place in that time frame. So Daniel is setting for us when this is all going down. Third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of, of Judah. So when is that? When is the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim? It is, and I think it tells you in the commentary in your uh, little commentary in your workbook, that this is all happening in the year 605, 605 B.C. So the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim is 605 B.C. Uh, and in 605 B.C., according to verse 1 of Daniel 1, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And then as you read on, you'll find that having besieged Jerusalem, he takes captives, including Daniel and his, his friends and others, and carts them off to Babylon. Now, if you've ever done any kind of a survey of the Old Testament and the major events of the Old Testament, one of the key major events in the Old Testament is called the Babylonian captivity. And so you may have heard that. God's people, Israel, being taken captive into Babylon. But the year associated with that is always 586 B.C. So here you've got this happening in 605 B.C. So when is this Babylonian captivity? Why, if you were to read a, a commentary, if you were to read a survey of the Old Testament, why would it peg 
the Babylonian captivity at 586 or 587 B.C., and yet here's Daniel and his friends in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, which is 605. What's the difference? Well, Nebuchadnezzar started taking people captive in 605. And he continued to, to take people captive. But as we're going to see, he allowed the Jews and those that remained some measure of independence back in Jerusalem, back in Palestine. But then he got sick, frankly, of their rebellion, as we're going to see. And in 586, he came and cleaned house. And that was a full-scale captivity and deportation of Jews from Palestine to Jerusalem. So this is taking place at the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's reign, uh, but also the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah's reign, and he is beginning his deportation of Jews from Palestine. But then that intensifies, and it becomes a full-scale deportation in 586 B.C. Okay, So this is all happening 605 B.C., third year of the reign of, of Jehoiakim. Nebuchadnezzar began to reign in that year himself, 605 uh, B.C. And he began to reign because his father, Nabopolassar, his dad, died that year. And so Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 1 and verse 1, is king of Babylon. He becomes king of Babylon when his father, when his father dies. And he... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is in Egypt having won a battle at a place called Carchemish. You don't have to remember any of this, but he, w he wins this military battle. And then he hears that his father has died. He is the one to now accede to the throne. He hustles back to Babylon to be inaugurated as, as king in 605 B.C. Crowned as king September 6th of 605 B.C. Now, let me stop for a minute. You know, you got the Battle of Carchemish, and you got these, you got these names, and you got these dates, and very specific, September 6, 605 B.C., and in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, and all of that. What should that mean to you and to me? That there are all of these historical specifics in, in the Bible. Well, one of the things that it, it should mean to you is that the Bible is not just a a book of fairy tales. The Bible is an historical book. And that's why the Bible gives you these historical details and gives you the precise time frames in which these things were, were happening. And it happens without fail that those who don't believe the Bible will always look at these dates and look at the people involved and they will say, that couldn't have happened. Nebuchadnezzar didn't reign at that time. And then lo and behold, we find stuff archaeological digs that prove, in fact, that Nebuchadnezzar reigned at the time when, when the Bible says. In fact, this very first verse says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And at one time, it was commonplace to deny that he could have besieged Jerusalem in 605 B.C. by liberals who deny the Bible. 1956, an inscription is, is found that says Nebuchadnezzar conquered the whole area of Syria, Phoenicia, and Palestine in 605 B.C. Just as the Bible says, every time. 
what the Bible gives us historical detail is always confirmed by what archaeology uncovers. And so, very first verse, third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, that's 605 B.C. He's the king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he has just become king of Babylon. He comes to Jerusalem and he besieges it. So, his father dies. Nebuchadnezzar has just won this battle in Egypt. He hustles back to Babylon to be crowned as king and then comes back to Jerusalem to take, uh, to take some uh, captives back to Jerusalem. Now, notice verse number two. In that time frame, 605 B.C., the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So, why is the king of Judah given to, to Nebuchadnezzar? Who did that? The Bible's very clear. The Lord did that. So, you need to lose the idea that bad stuff is outside of God's control. I mean, this whole thing we've seen is about the Lord's rule. And the Lord rules over the good, the bad, and the ugly. And right at the beginning, this, this bad occurrence, this negative thing, Judah and uh, its king and its inhabitants being taken captive, it says the Lord did this. Now, I want, to, want you to note something else in verse 2. It says the Lord de have delivered the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, and the Lord there, if you have the NIV, is capital L and then small o-r-d, which you've heard me say before, it is then a translation of the name of God, that is Adonai, rather than Yahweh. When the name of God that's in Hebrew in your Old Testament is given as Yahweh, the NIV does you the favor of trying to show that to you in English. And the way it does that is by having all four letters of Lord capitalized. So when you read your Old Testament in the NIV and you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's a translation of God's name, Yahweh. But when you see capital L and then small letters, it's a translation of another name for God, Adonai. And so watch for that. What's the significance of it? Most often the Bible would use Adonai rather than Yahweh, when it's speaking of God's rule over people in general. And when it's speaking of God's relationship, his special relationship to his people, it uses his personal name in Exodus 19 that God gave to his people through Moses, Yahweh. And so here, Adonai is, is used. Now, why is that? Because Adonai speaks of God as the supreme master over his, his world. And God is, we're being told right at the beginning of the book of Daniel, the master of this situation. And so it's, it's Adonai, God who is the supreme master over all the world, who has given Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And so it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's strength. It wasn't Jehoiakim's weakness. It was God's plan for this to happen. So right at the outset, first two verses of Daniel. You and I are to understand God rules. God reigns. You know, so the bumper stickers that say, you know, cats rule, dogs drool, or, you know, whatever it is. Well, I mean, you know, the headline on God's bumper sticker is God rules. And that's 
right at the outset, the theme that we're giving in, given in the, the book of Daniel. Jehoiakim, we'll talk a little bit more about Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, prior to Nebuchadnezzar coming and seizing, uh, besieging uh, Jerusalem, uh, he had been a, the, the term is a vassal, that is uh, somebody who was under the thumb of uh, a foreign king. And the foreign king under whose thumb he was, was Pharaoh in Egypt. The Pharaoh was Pharaoh Necho, N-E-C-H-O. But he had been under the thumb of, of Egypt, uh, which meant that Egypt could tell him and his subjects what to do, including paying tribute to, to Egypt, paying money, tax to, to Egypt. And now he's taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, and Second Chronicles chapter 36 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar bound him to take him to Babylon. So what a humiliating thing. You've already been a vassal of a foreign king, a pharaoh in Egypt. Now you've got another king from Babylon coming, and he, he actually puts you in chains to take you to Babylon. But uh, he ends up not actually being deported. He has to swear, though, allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, and he remains, uh, Jehoiakim remains in, in Palestine, in, in Jerusalem. Now, he remains back in Jerusalem. What happens to him? Well, if you were to read uh, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, you find Jehoiakim mentioned there. So I'm going to tell you what Jeremiah says about what happened to this Jehoiakim who had been a vassal of Egypt. Now he's chained by Nebuchadnezzar, but he's allowed to stay rather than being deported. But before I tell you what happened to him, uh, this should give you a clue about how to help yourself in studying the Bible. We're two verses into Daniel. You've read some names. And one of the things you should be curious about is, who are these people? So as I read Jehoiakim, I want to find out if the Bible says anything more about Jehoiakim. And in fact, in these prophetic books like Daniel is, uh, the characters and the countries and the kings that are given there are often spoken of in the historical books of your Old Testament. Those historical books include First and Second Chronicles, and First and Second Kings, so named. Why? Because it tells you about guys like this. So, if you were to, many of your Bibles will have just in the back a concordance, and if you were to look up Jehoiakim, you may well find him and references to him, so that you can get a little bit of background about what what happened with him. So, he's in his third year. Besieged by Nebuchadnezzar, he's not actually deported. He's left in Jerusalem, but you would think he would watch his step, but he got cocky. And Jeremiah tells us that Jeremiah told him, prophesied to him, preached to him, to submit to Nebuchadnezzar or else he'll pay the consequences. And you find Jehoiakim cocky after being a vassal of Egypt, after being put in chains by Nebuchadnezzar, so much so that he takes the scrolls of the Word of God. And Jeremiah tells us he cut them and threw them into the fire. And as a result, he was later, he was later humbled and chastened for his, for his rebellion. So back to 
back to the passage then. In verse 2. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now notice, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So, here's a serious affront, is it not? The God of Israel, as represented by the temple in Jerusalem, and all of the articles that go with the worship of the true and living God. And Nebuchadnezzar not only takes the people, he takes the stuff, takes some of the stuff, it tells us, out of the temple. But he doesn't just take some of the stuff, he takes it back to Babylon, and he puts it in the temple of his God. Now what's going on here? This is in your face and in your God's. Now, as you read your Old Testament, this is the kind of contest you often find. Do you remember Elijah having a contest, I mean a literal contest, at a place called Mount Carmel? You call on your gods, I'll call on the true and living God. And in the, in the exodus from Egypt, as Moses is sent by Yahweh, the true and living God, to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And God hardens Pharaoh's heart, the Bible says. Such that he will not do that. God brings ten plagues. But what you may not know is that each one of those ten plagues was a plague identified with one of the gods of Egypt. Till finally you have the plague of death. And Egypt had a god for life and death. And God, the true and living God, was showing, these are not real gods. I'm the true and living God. And I am over all of these would-be gods. So these contests in your Old Testament between nations, between Israel and Babylon and Assyria and other nations, are not just political and military con contests. They are contests about who is really God. And that's what's going on here. And so Nebuchadnezzar not only takes the people captive, but he takes some of the stuff out of the temple, takes it back to Babylon, and places it in the temple of his, his God. Now, it was fairly shrewd for, for him to do that. He took some, verse 2 says, of the vessels out of the temple, but not all. Later, 586 B.C., when he's had it with the insolence of the, of the Jews, uh, he comes back and he takes them all. But here he just takes some. And he takes some to show his superiority and the superiority of his God. But he leaves enough so that the Jews could carry on their religious ceremonies. And can you think of just a practical reason why a conquering king might allow you to still do some of your stuff? Well, it's to just keep you quiet. They often did this. And so they would take enough to show you who's boss but leave you enough to appease you in order to quell future rebellion. 586, he carries off everything according to Second Chronicles 36. And he carries it off to Babylon and to the house of his God. Now, when he does this, going back in uh, prior history in your Old Testament, 
the place where he takes this, Babylonia, you find referenced very early on in Scripture. Genesis chapter 10. Uh, and then chapter 11, the building of a tower at a place called Babel. And this is precisely where Nebuchadnezzar is carting off vessels, instruments that are used in the worship of God from the temple in Jerusalem to the temple of his God. And every time Babel and Babylon is used in Scripture, it is always negative. And it is always contrary to the true and living God. Now, who is Nebuchadnezzar's God? His God is a God named uh, Marduk. And uh, he, even, <laughs> he even named his, his son. And if the caller ID says God, you go ahead and answer that. <laughs> if not, it can wait till later. <laughs> you know what? It is one of my favorite things to see people go, Oh, no, what do I do with this? Which button do I hit? <laughs> I thought you handled that pretty well, Bonnie. <laughs> That's all right. What did you say, God? <laughs> so, uh, who's his God? Marduk. Well, he even, Nebuchadnezzar names his son after Marduk, his God. That's how devoted he is to, to his God. He was the chief deity in Babylon. And Babylon, of course, polytheistic, many gods. Another one of their gods was named Nebo, and Nebuchadnezzar is named after, after that god. So you can see how devoted Nebuchadnezzar and his entire family are to the gods of, of Babylon. Marduk is sometimes mentioned in scripture as Bel or Baal. So when you read, when you read in your Old Testament, you read often of Baal worship. We're talking about this. So, here's Nebuchadnezzar carting this stuff off to none other than Baal. Isaiah uh, predicted that one day the uh, gods of Babylon would be humiliated. Now, when it says the gods of Babylon, they're not real, of course, but that which represents gods for the Babylonians, Isaiah prophesied that they would be, that they would be humiliated when the Persians came and uh, conquered Babylon. Chapter 2 of Daniel, if you have a chance to read that, we're going to see, I think tonight, that he saw this, uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw this image, right, of a statue, and these four parts to it that represent four world kingdoms. Babylon is the first one, but the next one is, is Persia, in the Persian Empire. And Isaiah predicted that the gods of Babylon would be carted off by the Persians. And that happened actually in 539 B.C. Isaiah 46 and verse 1. Bel has bowed down. This is Isaiah. Bel has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. But for now, Babylon is king of the hill and... Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to show that by taking some of the instruments from the temple in Jerusalem and taking them to the temple in Babylon devoted to Baal, otherwise known as, as Marduk. And then verse 3 says, 
Then the king ordered uh, Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So, you guys remember last week, uh, if you were here, I, I said when you read these uh, stories of what happened to other people in the first part of your Bible, how are you how, and how am I going to profit from that? We're not in Babylon, we're not in Jerusalem, so that's a distant place in time. How do I benefit from this? And I said last week that you need to ask yourself, you know, what does this say about the fallen condition? What does it say about us? What does it say about God? Remember that from last week? So, here are these young men being taken off to a foreign land and to be instructed in the learning of the Babylonians. Now, how might that apply to you and me? <laughs> well, does not the Bible teach over and over that we are aliens and strangers in, a, in effect in a foreign land? That that is what Christians are. Even though, we're, even though we're natives of America, we march to the beat of a different drummer. And one of the challenges now that these young men, Daniel and his, his three friends, and the rest of them are going to have is as they are given the learning of Babylon to not adopt the learning of Babylon. That's the same kind of challenge we have. We're faced with all the false propositions that our culture, our educational system present to us, and yet we need to maintain our convictions and our commitment to truth. And you find it difficult. You go to, you go to a high school in America, you go, to a, you go to a college in America, and you try to maintain belief in what the Bible says. And you're going to find that often very difficult. And so that's what these guys are finding, and it's the same, are going to find, and we're going to see that they're noble examples of how to withstand that, that kind of pressure. And so it speaks of, verse 4 does, the literature of the Babylonians. And the literature of the, the Babylonians is the literature of the world. And so they're going to seek to immerse these young men, these Jewish young men, in Babylonian false wisdom. Now it says the Babylonians. Some translations say that the Chaldeans. Any of you guys ever heard uh, heard that word Chaldean? Hey, Sue, you are being summoned. <laughs> You've heard the call. <laughs> you know, you've heard that word Chaldeans. I mean, we have a Chaldean community, um, and 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 Chaldeans are identify in Dearborn we have a Chaldean community and uh, they are generally identified as Arab Christians as opposed to Arab Muslims um, they come from what's modern day Iraq which is exactly where Babylon is and and so that's why some translations say the learning of the of the the Chaldeans in Daniel chapters 2 through 5 this word for Chaldeans, or in the NIV translated Babylonians, is used of a special class of wise men. 
And so the learning of these people who were really knowledgeable in false pagan, pagan learning, albeit, but nonetheless knowledgeable. And so that's where Daniel and these others have been carted off to. Now notice uh, verse beginning of verse 6. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. So what's going on here? These young people are going to be thoroughly immersed in the ways of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Giving them a new identity. Giving them a new name. And so we're given their new name to Daniel, Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, to Azariah, Abednego. Now, we normally refer to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the truth is, they much prefer to be refer referred to by their given Hebrew names. And they didn't much care for <laughs> having been given Babylonian names. Now, what do these names mean? Dan Daniel. Daniel. Whenever you see a name with L ending in the Old Testament. You see that a lot, don't you? Ezekiel, right? Or you see a name with Yah at the end. That's because it's referring to Yahweh or Elohim. It's referring to God. So Bethel, house Beit El, house of God. So that's why you see a lot of these names in your Old Testament ending with E-L or ending with you know A-H because they have God. In them. So what does Daniel mean? God is my judge. So that's his given name. God is my judge. Belteshazzar is wife of Marduk. Oh, there's a change for you. Hananiah. Hananiah. Right? Hallelujah. Hallel praise. So praise Yahweh. Hallelujah. But Hananiah means Jehovah, Yahweh, has been gracious. But he's given the name Shadrach, which is I am very fearful. Or Mishael, who is as God. Micah, you know the prophet, Joel, you got all of these. Micah. Who is like Yahweh? And here is Mishael. Who is as God? He's given the name Mish Meshach, which means I am of little worth. I am of little account. And then Azariah. Jehovah has helped. Abednego. Servant of Nabu. Well, you see what's happening here. These guys are being humiliated, are being thoroughly immersed and inculcated into Chaldean Babylonian learning, including changing their names. And all of their names that they were given by their apparently pious, devoted families were all related to, were all related to Yahweh and Elohim. And so they're given these, given these new names. Um, it's interesting, as you'll read further now in the book of Daniel, how... You still have them 
often being referred to by their, by their Jewish name. Even by as late as chapter 5, Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar uh, refers to them by their, by their Hebrew names. And so they must have insisted on being called by their, by their Hebrew names. And they had impressed enough people that uh, they were accommodated in that, at least, uh, at least to some extent. Look at verse 8. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this, this way. So what's going on with that? Um, okay, you guys have carted us off. You're going to teach us all your junk. You change our names. <laughs> uh, I don't want your menu. So why is he doing that? Well, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of debate about that. In fact, in your uh, workbook, if you had a chance to read the, the commentary, it says it was probably related to the dietary laws, Jewish dietary laws. Uh, but others don't think so, and I don't think so either, personally. And here's why I don't think so. is because, uh, actually, <laughs> wine was, was not forbidden in, uh, in the Jewish dietary laws. And that's one of the things he refused as well. So, so why is he refusing this stuff? Uh, it is probably because uh, when you engage in a common meal, you are representing a commonality with. And that's why, for instance, communion is so important that only Christian people take, place in, take part in communion. Because you are taking part with. And it is also why that you should, you should not eat meat that is being offered to an idol. Now, Paul goes on to say it's just meat and all of that, and after it's going to be thrown out. But you do not participate in the meal of, of idols and demons, he says, 1 Corinthians 10. And so that is, in all likelihood, what Daniel is doing here. He does not want to be morally identified with the gods of, of Babylon. And so, you know, what's, what's he going to eat? And for, uh, and for the um, Ashpenaz, verse 3, the king's official, who's told to take care of these guys and give this learning to them and, and feed them, and they say, we don't want your food, he then says, if I don't feed you guys and you shrivel up, the king's going to come after me. And he's going to have all of our heads. So what do we do? And Daniel says, give it ten days. And let's see how it goes. And then the story goes on to tell us, after those ten days, they actually look more fit than all of, all of the rest. Now again, what can you learn out of that? God honors doing the right thing. Even when, doing the right, even when you don't know how doing the right thing is going to work out. How can this possibly work out? And yet, God works it out. God honors doing the right thing, even when you can't see how he's going to work it out. And so verses 9 through 16, that test occurs, they pass that test. And then down in verse 17, chapter 1. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Now notice 
where this knowledge and under, understanding, it says, God gave. So Daniel's ability to do what he did, as we're going to see in chapter 2, and know the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and give the interpretation, comes from God himself. And this is reminiscent of Joseph and of Moses, where God gave them abilities to withstand kings and tyrants as, as well. But it all, comes from, it all comes from God. Daniel was only able to understand these visions and dreams after he prayed in chapter 2. He fervently prayed, Lord, and his friends prayed, Lord, give him the interpretation. And the Lord gave it. Again, they had to pray because it came from the Lord. It's not about Daniel. It's about God. Okay? Now, what about this whole dream thing now? Let me just do an aside on that. Dreams and vision. Proverbs says, where there is no vision, the King James says, where there is no vision, the people what? Anybody know? People perish. Politicians quote this all the time, who have no clue what the Bible means. Yeah, so where there is no vision, the people perish. I'm the man with the vision. We're not going to perish because I'm here. Okay? But what is a vision in Scripture? What does a vision do in Scripture? When God gives a vision, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1, it's the vision that God gave to Isaiah. So what is a vision in Scripture? It's a revelation. It's God telling somebody something they otherwise could not have known. God's revealing. That's what a vision is. It's revelation. And God gave revelation in visions, and he gave revelation in dreams. Now the question for you to think about is, is God still giving revelation? And my understanding of that is, no. He gave dreams and visions, and God has recorded dreams and visions in a book. Now, we won't take time to look there, but if you care to jot down Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Hebrews 1, 1. God spoke to our forefathers in the past at various times and in various ways. Hebrews 1, 1. Now notice, God spoke to our forefathers when? In the past at various times and in various ways, has now spoken to us through his Son. That's the beginning of the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews is now going to go on to show the revelation in Jesus is better than all of it. Better than Moses, better than the law, better than everything. And so <clears throat> Daniel is able to receive revelation visions and dreams but this all comes all comes from God and notice verse 18 at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar the king talked with them and he found none equal to the Hebrew names Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. 
in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So, here is the center of secular learning in the world, Babylon. And this is the brilliant monarch of that center of learning, Nebuchadnezzar. And he's being treated to questioning and back and forth with these, three te these four teenagers. Think about that. And I, and I, would, I would just say, you know, Dan we say, well, Daniel, you know, God gave him revelation and all of that. Um, has God, so has God given us revelation? Yeah, it's in, a, it's in the form of a book. But the point is that, that God can still do this with, people to, with us today. We can still withstand the learning of secular America with the revelation that God has provided in his, in his word. And Daniel remained there, verse 21, until the first year of King Cyrus. Now we'll find out later. Now Cyrus comes along. He's king of Persia, 539 B.C. Babylonian Empire falls. Persian Empire begins. And Daniel says later in the book of Daniel that in the third year of Cyrus' reign, Daniel has his final vision. So what does this mean when it says then Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus? Is that a contradiction? The answer, of course, is no. You know, if, um, if Kim and I go out for an evening, we leave Lainey and Annie at home, and we say, girls, be good until we get home. doesn't mean after we get home it's okay not to be good. And this doesn't mean that Daniel didn't remained there after, but he remained there until Cyrus came along, and apparently a bit after as, as well. So then you come to chapter 2 and the great uh, vision, that, or excuse me, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And so let's look at that, uh, look at that together. Chapter 2, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled. He could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. So here you got all of these different, the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers. I mean, who are these? What are they? Uh, the magicians, uh, the word that's translated for magicians here is used in Genesis uh, 41 for the renowned teaching priests of Egypt. So these were knowledgeable people. And then uh, the, next, the next one is the enchanters. And that uh, may refer to snake charmers. And then you've got the sorcerers. And the sorcerers are those who would put charms and spells on others. They would, you know, it's the kind of stuff that you see on, you know, cutting up herbs, putting it into a, casting a spell. That was, that was the, uh, the sorcerers. And then, uh, and then the astrologers, and there's a note on that. Uh, if, you have the, if you have the NIV, it says the astrologers or the Chaldeans. So 
but the Chaldeans were famed for their ability in astrology and watching the movement of the the uh, the plant or the planets and the and the and the stars. In fact, so good were the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, at at astrology and watching the movements of the heavenly bodies, that one of their astronomers in 500 B.C. was able to calculate the length of a year at 365 days, 6 hours, 15 minutes, and 41 seconds. He's 21 minutes and 55 seconds too long. But in 500 B.C., that's pretty good. That's a Babylonian astronomer. There's another one in 390 B.C. who was able to predict solar and lunar eclipses accurately. So what this is telling you is this. In verse 2 of chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar summons the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed, it's telling you, it's giving you all those names to say these are the cream of the crop. And they're all being summoned, and there's going to be a contest, and we all know who's going to win, right? And we know the, the story. The Chaldeans, verse 4, <clears throat> answered the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. And they try to you know, butter him up. Now they answer the king in Aramaic in chapter 2 and verse 4. And all the way through chapter 7 now of Daniel, from Daniel chapter 2 and verse 4 all the way to the end of Daniel chapter 7, the rest of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. So prior to this, chapter 1 and verse 1 to chapter 2 and verse 3, it's written in Hebrew. Beginning in chapter 2 and verse 4 to the end of chapter 7, it's written in Aramaic. It's one of the few sections in the Old Testament that's written in Aramaic. And then chapter 8 and verse 1, it's Hebrew again. So why, so why is that? Well, it's because the subject matter uh, from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7 is God's dealing with the Gentile world. And so to just emphasize that, and where is Daniel when he's writing this? He's in Babylon where they speak what? As the common commercial language? Aramaic. And so he writes those chapters in, in Aramaic. And this became a problem for the Jews because 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes, he carts them off to, to Babylon, takes all their stuff. This is the Babylonian 70-year captivity. So you have several generations, nearly four generations now, that have not been in Jerusalem and have not been speaking Hebrew. When Ezra and Nehemiah lead them back from Babylon, back to Jerusalem, and when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what those books are about, right? And do you guys remember, we, in fact, we just read it a week ago Sunday as our scripture reading in Nehemiah chapter 8, that, that Ezra would stand before the people. They made a special platform for him to stand before the people. We put dot, dot, dot. We didn't read the special platform piece because we don't have a platform at all, so we just didn't want anybody to say anything about not having a stupid platform. Okay, so. But it actually says in Nehemiah 8, they made a special platform for Ezra to stand before the people to read the law and to explain it to them so that they could understand the sense. Now, do you know why that was so important? 
because they had been gone for 70 years. And they didn't speak Hebrew. They have been speaking Aramaic all this time. And now for them to just have the law and to be taught in the law and to understand the language in which the law is written is now going to require a whole process of re-education for them when they return to Jerusalem. So when it says in verse 4, the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, from this point on, Daniel writes the, all the way through the end of chapter 7 in, in Aramaic. Now, verse 5. The king replied to the astrologers. You know, they said, tell us the dream, we'll interpret. He replies, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces. And your house is turned into piles of rubble. Now, is Nebuchadnezzar blowing smoke? No, he's not. <laughs> he's done this with people. He will do this. And the beginning of verse 5, it says, this is what I have firmly decided. In the King James, it says, anybody got a King James? It says, uh, the thing is gone from me. And so what a lot of people interpret that as, and it sounds that way, the dream is gone from me. I can't remember the dream. But notice the NIV doesn't say the thing is gone from me. It says, this is what I firmly decided. Now, what's, how do you get those? How do those harmonize? The thing's gone from me. This is what I firmly decided. When you're the king and what you say goes, what he's saying is, I've said it. That's the way it's going to be. So it's not necessarily, and I don't personally believe it is, that he forgot the dream. I believe Nebuchadnezzar knew the dream. Now, why is he doing this? Why is he making these guys tell him the dream? He's a relatively young uh, king. He's probably got older magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, who he is suspecting have been running a scam. And he's now going to test them on it. So, because, think about it. I mean, this is how horoscopes work. You know, you can just make stuff up. And then people can interpret now through the lens of what you made up. So if you read your horoscope, number one, you should. But if you, if, you look, if you look at it and it says, today you will meet someone interesting. Very helpful. And then you get pulled over by a cop. <laughs> and you're ticked. And then you're driving away and you go, I remember my horoscope said, that was a pretty interesting cop, actually, actually right? Because now you start to interpret the events in light of. And that's what these guys, that's what these guys would do. They just make stuff up. You tell me the dream, this is what it means. Nebuchadnezzar is testing them. They can't do it. They beg him. You've got to tell us the dream. And he's going to have them all killed, including Daniel. And when the official comes to get Daniel and say, the king has decreed that all of you will be killed, Daniel says, give me a shot. And chapter 2 is about Daniel praying to the true and living God. And then God giving Daniel not only the dream, but the interpretation of the dream. Now, what's the vision that in that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had? It's this great image. And here's another reason why I don't believe that Nebuchadnezzar had actually forgotten the dream. Because in verse 31 of Daniel chapter 2, it's described as awesome. This is not something you would forget. 
And it's this awesome vision of an image with a head of gold, with a chest of silver, with a midsection of bronze, and with legs of iron uh, and feet of iron mixed with clay. And then Daniel gives the interpretation. And what's the interpretation? These are four kingdoms, and you, Nebuchadnezzar, are that head of gold. Now, you're Nebuchadnezzar, and you're hearing him say, you're that head of gold. And you're loving life at this point. Of course, I'm the head of gold, <laughs> king of the world. Your kingdom extends vastly. God has given this to you, and his pride swells. And then Dan Daniel says, and that chest of silver is going to be another kingdom to come after you. How could it be a kingdom to come after me? He even says, it's going to be an inferior kingdom to yours. How can an inferior kingdom come and get me? I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I'm the head of gold. And God is giving him a hint now as to who gave you your power and who can take it away. And indeed, as we will see next week, the Persian Empire compared to the Babylonian Empire was inferior in a number of respects. And that's signified actually in the kinds of metals in each of these. As you go from gold to silver to bronze to iron, in each one of those you go to an inferior metal. And so there'll be this kingdom, and then so now Nebuchadnezzar has served notice. But then after that, there will be a third world kingdom. And that's identified in Daniel chapter 8 as the Greek kingdom. And history confirms that. And then uh, the, the Greek empire. And then the fourth and final empire, Rome. Divided into east and west, two legs. Isn't it an amazing thing that in the 6th century BC, Daniel could predict world history because God gave it to him. It's so amazing that if you don't believe the Bible, then you'll say he could not have written that in the 6th century BC. And liberals and critics of the Bible have tried, like the Dickens, to place Daniel at a later time after the events rather than before the events. But Daniel was written during the time of that first kingdom, Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar as, as the king. All right, so in the three minutes we have left, the questions that you guys answered, I think we covered most of them in the commentary I just gave. But we may not have covered all of them. Does anybody have a question about anything that's there? If not, that's okay. If nobody did the homework, that's not okay. Lord knows. That was the Lord calling Bonnie, saying, Bonnie, do your homework. Oh, look at you. She was written all over it. All right, then. I'm a false prophet, then. <laughs> I'm not doing my homework. All right. Thank you, guys. But I encourage you to uh, do that for next week, and then uh, we'll continue going on through a couple of chapters each week. Okay? All right. Thanks.